What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. In today's episode, I sat down with Tomas Pueyo. Tomas is the VP of Growth at a unicorn startup called Course Hero. He's also an expert on the structure of storytelling, and he's written a series of very interesting articles and a book on that subject. And finally, Tomas is the author of a mega viral series of articles about the coronavirus, how it works, how it spreads, and how all of us can respond to it effectively. In fact, these articles are so viral that it's pretty likely if you've read anything online about the coronavirus in the past few weeks, you've come across Tomas's articles or at least something that referenced them. They have been cited by business leaders and government leaders all over the world who've used what Tomas has shared to make arguably life and death decisions. They've been endorsed by hundreds of scientists and epidemiologists. And my goal really with this episode is to sit down and try to figure out how all three of these topics intertwine. How does Tomas think about the structure of stories? How does he use storytelling to attract millions of users as a VP of growth at a startup? And how does he use his storytelling skills and his startup growth skills to write such influential and widely shared articles online? I hope you enjoy the discussion. You are obsessed with storytelling. I think that's a fair claim for me to make. Yes. You've given talks about storytelling. You've written books and articles about the structure of stories. And you've woven that into pretty much every area of your life. Why is storytelling so important? I think uh, I just love understanding things. And the more complex something is, the harder it is, the more I want to understand it. And I think that's a drive that explains a lot of the things. It explains storytelling the way uh, we're going to discuss about it in a second, but also the focus, for example, on coronavirus. In the case of storytelling, it's this insight. There are patterns to it, as many people know, from uh, you know the hero's journey, uh, the hero from Thousand Faces, and the fact that you have companies like Pixar that can have a success rate of 100%, meaning that they really know their stories and how they work. And so so there are these patterns to an uneducated audience. You don't see them at all. Right? And it's a bit for me like architecture where you see the facade, but the facade is just that. Then for you to get the facade, you need to build the entire building and there's all this technical knowledge behind it. And I find it fascinating. And not only that, but then when I started reading and analyzing storytelling structure, I realized that everything that was written was how, but not why. And so it's like, I don't know if you read Tim Urban from Wait But Why, but they make a difference between the cooks and the chefs. And really, for storytelling, nearly everything that's out there is cooks, it's recipes. Like, hey, first you do this thing, and then you do this thing, and this is the structure, and on page 25, you do this thing. And like, that can be like, I want to be a chef about it. I want to understand how it works. And so that's really why I got into storytelling to really understand why things are the way they are. So that then once you understand their underlying patterns, you can apply your own rules. You can do your own storytelling if you understand the underlying structure. You grew up in a house where your father was a filmmaker. Did that play a role in sort of the story of how you got into storytelling? Yeah, for sure. He had a, a TV commercials production company uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so he 
is very focused on that. But and, and he was a super obviously fan of movies because it's very close to to his job. And so we would my conversations uh, with him about movies were never about you know like a character and whatnot, but rather oh this actor what he said like makes no sense right or there's a loop in he in this uh, script and things like that. So so kind of a, very much a meta level conversation uh, storytelling. And then I took this sensitivity afterwards to all the books I read, all the movies that I make, and, and that's what uh, led me into into that world. I remember watching movies as a kid, and I had a good friend who would come over, and we would just dissect every part of the movie. We wouldn't even talk about what the movie's about. We would just talk about what they were thinking, and it drove my brother crazy. He's like, you guys are such nerds. It's not fun to watch movies with you. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. I've read uh, some articles you've actually published online about storytelling, and you've you've gone so far as to actually come up with your own theory for why stories work, why we like to tell stories, why we like to listen to stories. Give us some notes about your theory, because I found it super captivating yeah. and really easy to understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear. Yeah, so the very high level is stories are problem solving. You first explain the problem, then you give a key insight, the key insight for the story, for the problem, to solve the problem. And then at the end, you solve uh, the problem. And so that actually creates a ring structure because you want to create symmetry between the beginning where you explain the problem and the second part of the movie where you explore the solution right? and, or the movie or the story. Uh, being more specific about, about stories, usually the first half of a story is about the problem and the exploration of the problem. And usually it is about how the main character has a flaw that prevents that main character from reaching their goals. And then the key insight, which is usually called the midpoint in storytelling, is the revelation of what that core flaw is and the first time that the main character realizes that. And then the second half is for the main character to try to struggle, like struggling with that uh, key insight until finally the resolution is when they finally accept that insight. And once you look at this from this perspective, you can see that everywhere in all stories. The interesting thing about it is also not just this, this ring structure, but the fractal nature of that ring structure, meaning that it is true for an entire work, but it's also true for each one of the acts in that, in that work. And even within the scenes, even within the shots, you can see these problem statements, key insight, resolution structure. And is also that this translates exactly to our job in growth, in products, online products, in that the way to approach growth or product is also should also be this way or even any problem. First, you do the problem statement and then you explore that problem statement and why what the different approaches are and then you come up with a solution. So it's very much this is becoming this frame of mind for me to look at the world. It's funny because that's a lesson that so many first-time founders would benefit from understanding because I think the default intuitive approach is, well, first you build a solution. You build some sort of app. You create you know, the product that you really want to be out there in the world. And then you look for people who, are, who need it. And that almost never works. You've always got to do what you're saying. Start with the problem. Figure out what people are actually driven to do because people don't just randomly take actions out of the billions of things they could do in the world. They tend to do things that solve their problems. And so you need to think about that first and everything you do Exactly. And then, so I, I love that. You're totally right. And you can also see that in a couple other places. Uh, for example, when you're doing a roadmap, right, you shouldn't jump into, into features, right? It's about first, okay, what is the problem you're trying to solve? 
usually it's a business problem. You're just connected to the customer problem, right? and you need to have a deep understanding of that problem. Once you have a deep understanding of that problem, then you want to start jumping to potential solutions, right? Another example where we see these in startups is on the structure of pitches, right? There is a reason why main, the big VCs or uh, traditional wisdom in pitches says there should be a set of slides and even the order of the slides. And the way they're structured is problem, inside solution. Problem is what's the market, the total addressable market, the, the pain point, the core pain point that people have, right? Then you talk about the core insight on how you solve that pain point, what's unique about your pain point, right? And then at the end, you have the solution, which is my company can solve that better than anybody else. So this is the team, this is the money that I need, and so on and so forth. And so you very much have that exact same problem, key insight, uh, solution structure. And you can see that in many, many places in our, our growth or product uh, or world. So you've got this common pattern. You've got this problem, then insight, then solution. And that's in startup pitches. It's in product development. It's in storytelling. Pixar uses it. What's the why here? Why do you see this structure repeated all throughout life? And why does it resonate so well with people who are listening to these pitches and watching these yeah. movies? I think it is evolutionary. There is a very strong um, value in learning from the experience of others, right? And that's one of the core reasons why uh, we develop languages. Language, it's not the only one, but it's one of the core ones. It's like the cost of learning from somebody's experience is very low and the value is very high. The way for you to learn has to be first understanding the problem and then figuring out the solution because the way you understand the problem, like you need to first understand the problem because otherwise you you don't know whether this is relevant or not to you, right? And once you understand the problem, okay, this is something that might happen to me, then you're willing to learn the solution. And so that happened for so many generations that from the research that I was able to look at, it sounds like we've evolved to learn that way. It's almost hypnotic. Like if you're reading a book or a novel, sort of famously, you'll get lost in the pages and not be able to pull yourself out of it. Or someone's telling you a story, it's captivating and you're kind of transported to the place where that person was or the characters in the story were in a way that doesn't happen if somebody's giving you a PowerPoint. And the point there is there is an insight, there's value in the, on the person who says the story because they get the goodwill, but also for the recipient, right? And there's a very strong evolutionary incentive for you to be able to learn from somebody else's experience, right? And from these problems and solutions. I got this from a TEDx talk that you gave where you kind of drew, I'm sure you remember giving it, but you're very animated on stage and you're pretending to be sort of a caveman yes. gathering all the kids around to tell a story about hunting and the caveman pulls out a laptop and, and is like, here's the PowerPoint slides. The PowerPoint. So on those slides that I have in that TEDx, I purposefully give basically solutions. I give data points. And that's, to me, the number one issue in all presentations. People jump to a solution. And if you're not understanding the problem first, you're not ready to understand the solution. In fact, the number one TED, I think, in the world, in, in history, in terms of views, is from, I think, Simon Sinek. And, and he says actually something similar. He talks about these concentric circles that you first need to focus on the why and then the, I think the why, the how and the what or something like that. But the point of the why is the same. It's understanding the problem. So whenever somebody, usually whenever somebody presents something, they're just giving the solutions and that's like a punch in the face. You're not ready. You're not ready to cope with it. So not only are you big into storytelling, but you're also 
the vice president of growth at an online learning startup called Course Hero. And Course Hero is big. You guys are getting many tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of page views every month. You have 20 million registered students on the platform. Uh, tell me, how did you get to the point where you were in charge of growing a company like that? I think very quickly on, on the background, after my MBA, I wanted to know how to maximize my impact. And I realized that creating product online, products online was by far the best way because the scale that you can have is unparalleled. So I wanted to know how to create products. And I thought video games was the best way to do that because video games are a useless UI. And because it's useless, it needs to be really compelling to keep you on. And so I did that for, for a few years. And then after that, I wanted to have impact. The, and first I did that in a fintech company, helping uh, people invest. And now in edtech, the reason why I wanted to work in, ed, in education is, I think is the root of most problems. If you solve education, you solve many other problems. So that's why I ended up in, in Coursero. But as of my position there, that, that's, that's such a hard question, right? Like who can answer these kind of questions? I can't. Tell me about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, because... Most people trying to start startups listening to this podcast, they're in the very early stages of growth. They're just trying to figure out how to get their very first couple users or customers in the door. You're trying to figure out how to get the 21st million customer in the door. What does that look like? By the way, like the problem that you're talking about from entrepreneurs is so much harder than I think problems later on. So I have all my respect for people who try to do this. My job is twofold, I would say. One is their roadmap, right? is deciding helping people decide what we're going to build. And again, it's problem solution, right? Really deeply understanding the problems that we're going to focus on and then triaging them, deciding which ones are more, like are bigger, can have a bigger impact, have a higher confidence. And then for the solution, same thing, which ones uh, cost benefit and confidence, right? So that's the core piece. And then around that, it's building the, the team that can, do this right my product really is actually not the product itself is the organization that can build that product so recruiting is a core part of, of what i do organization structure is a core part of what i do and then these two things are i think are the core the core pieces uh if you and, and then on top of that you have a high level strategy right it's very linked to to the roadmap i would say but it's also linked to the team and the cost and how you spend that and so for that you need to take a very big step back on the industry and the competitors and how they work and, and where things go. And if, if anybody in your audience reads Ben Thompson from Strategy or Strategy, thinking about these kind of things is, this, is very similar to this strategy level uh, that I need to take care of. I'm reading a book. I just started a couple of days ago, so I'm not done with it, but it's called Story Brand by, I think, Donald Miller. And it's all about how storytelling can sort of factor into your marketing as a company. And so in the story that you're trying to tell as a company, you're not the hero, but your customers, your users are the hero. And you're sort of, you know, the guide providing the tools that they need to have that transformative midpoint experience that you talked about. So the second half of their story can be a solution. And you can kind of talk about that in all of your marketing. You know, here's what their life is yeah. like in the first half without your help. And here's what their life is like now that they've been empowered by Course Hero or Indie Hackers or whatever your business is. Do you look at marketing at all like that? And, and how do you think about weaving storytelling into what you do with startup growth? I do. I think one of the reasons also why I was always very compelled to storytelling is because I'm extremely analytical and I'm not the, very much a creative guy. And so I've always, 
I found it very compelling that you could use an analytical approach to something that's creative storytelling. Um, but I'm not a very creative person. And as a result, all the area of branding, of marketing, I am very bad at. Um, I wouldn't trust myself to create copy or uh, come up with ideas for ad campaigns and things like that. So my added value whenever I have, I face some advertising or messaging feedback is rather always trying to understand the problem solution kind of who is the audience, what are we trying to achieve for them, what's the problem that I'm trying to solve and does this solve the problem. And so I usually don't participate in these brainstorms and share ideas. Whenever I do, it's very bad. My value proposition there is not that. It's more like keeping the stakeholders and, and, and the goals in mind. So I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who've had this sort of same realization that you need to start with the problem first. And when they look into what problems their customers are actually trying to solve, oftentimes it's not intuitive. It's not what an outsider looking at the product would think that product is providing. So recently I talked to Baird Hall, who has a company called Wave, and they help podcasters share these little bite-sized audio clips from their show on Twitter. And you would think, oh, the problem he's solving is people want to grow their podcast. They want to get more users. But in reality, when he actually talked to his customers and figured out what messaging really resonated, it turned out that fledgling podcasters just want to look more professional. They want to feel more like their heroes and they want their show to be impressive and not embarrassing. And so that's kind of why they use this service. What are some of the deeper problems that you're solving for customers at Course Hero? That is so hard and is the single most important question that anybody can be asking if they are building companies. For me, I think that there's one overarching point that is more about the company than the, the specifics of the product itself. So its core insight is that people don't want to pay to learn. People want to pay to graduate. This is deeply super important, right? For learning, your assumption is that content is free. You can learn anything online and you don't want to pay for anything. But you're paying tens of thousands of dollars in the US for college. And what you want is that graduation paper. So it's interesting, right? Because isn't graduation supposed to just prove that you learn? Right. So shouldn't be should learning be good enough? But that's actually, if you look into the detail, that's not the way it works. So there's a, an amazing book I read last year, probably my favorite book from 2019, which, uh, which is called The Elephant in the Brain. And one of the things that they explain, if you look at the data, it proves that people don't want to learn. They want to, to uh, have this paper that proves that they can work in a place, in a given place and make money. And so that's the value. It's making money. And how do you prove that you can work in a company and add value? You need to prove that you can follow orders, that you can be sitting for a long time, amount of time at one place. You can do what you're told. You can look into a problem and solve it. You can do that relatively independently and so on and so forth. And that's why that is the added value of the education process, not as much as the learning, which is why, for example, you have a couple of data points that are interesting. One, if learning was really the relevant point, then a person that has studied biology should only focus on biology all their life. And math, only focus on math, but that's not true, right? You learn something and then you can do something completely different. If the content was really what was useful, then that shouldn't happen. And I think I think is relevant is you can look at the premium in salaries per year of education. And if learning was the value, then that should be increasing proportionally to the years, but it doesn't at all. It is very much like this. And so there's a huge premium on finishing your degree 
because it proves that you could go through all of that and end up with this paper. And so that's one of the core uh, insights, I think. People don't want to, to learn. What they want is to make money. And for that, what they need is to graduate. I had a previous guest on the show who runs basically a series of courses for professionals in the tech industry to become better at SEO, better at growth, et cetera. And he kind of pointed the same thing out that, look, people can learn for free online. You can download this podcast episode at zero cost and learn everything that Tomas Poyo has to tell you. And that costs zero. You're right. There's no certification you get. There's no way this is going to get you a job. So you're not going to pay for it. What's the business model for Course Hero? How do you guys make money? Well, we had people graduate. And so it is a platform to share uh, resources to study. You can, if you have a question, for example, or if you want to see how somebody else has approached a problem, you can either pay to have access to that content or you can share your own content to have access to that content. So that enables anybody, whether they have money or not, to be able to access content. And it's very much because it's people sharing these documents, it's very much focused on graduating. They might have their study notes. They might have, that's the, one of the main use cases, right? They, they write study notes and then they share them. You want to see how people have done this. Maybe there's a past exam and they see the different approaches that different people have had to understand how they should approach it. That makes so much sense. And I, I think the lesson to distill from that, if you're a founder listening to this and trying to figure out, you know, how do I make money with my business? People might use it, but they're not paying for it, is to think about where the actual value is and the part that people find valuable enough to pay for and try to get close to that. And so in your particular case, there's so much going on in school, so much going on with education, but the part that's valuable is graduation. And so you sort of position yourself as we help you graduate, we help you pass that test, pass that exam, so you can get the thing that's of real monetary value to you which might not even be the learning. It's, it's the certificate. It's the degree. And when you're hinting at a hierarchy of problems, which I think is very important, right? Like this hierarchy, overarching point of graduating is, is what we're trying to do. But then you need to look into the detail of the different problems that people have and then try to solve that, right? Some people talk about a point of view from design thinking or jobs to be done, but these details are the ones that matter, right? So for example, one of the issues that students face when you're talking with them is many students actually have kids or are working. I think 25% of them have kids. And so if you have kids and or you're working, you have zero time. You have money, a bit of money if you're working, but you have zero time, right? So you have no time. You can't go to office hours. So you have this question. I have these two-hour slot this week to study this. I can go to office hours. I don't know anybody on campus because I don't have time to spend there. I need an answer when I have the question. And so we have a, a way for people to ask questions at Q&A service um, because this is the specific job to be done that they have in this context of graduating. And that's the kind of thing you're not going to be able to figure out if you don't spend a lot of time talking to people and finding out what actual problems they have. It's the only thing that matters. Uh, there was a tweet, I don't remember from whom, I think maybe Paul Graham. The person said something like, the number one reason why startups fail is building something that people don't want, which is the same way as saying uh, they didn't understand the problem and not solving a problem. And then the second one is running out of money, which to me is you're basically building a solution without being close enough to the problem and focus on the problem and solving the problem as you go. So both of the, and then he said, the third one doesn't matter. It's just one of these two. That's like 90% of the cases. So stories are about problems. Startups are about problems. And the thing that put you on my radar about a month ago is this mega viral article that you wrote on Medium called 
coronavirus, why you must act now. And for me, that, that article actually solved a problem. For me, the problem was I've got some friends and family members who aren't really taking this pandemic seriously. I'm not really doing a great job of being, being able to convince them to take it seriously and explain it to them. But this article is amazing. And if I just share this article with them, it will solve this problem that I have that my cousin or my aunt like, will not stay at home <laughs> and keep themselves safe and also not infect other people. And I'm sure it solved a ton of other problems for lots of other people. What did you hope to accomplish as a result of sharing your thoughts and advice on the coronavirus when you decided to sit down and write this article? It was very much that, actually. So the story, the way it worked is Silicon Valley was already pretty vocal about the coronavirus, even in January, then beginning of February. So I started looking into it based on all these comments from all the people, mostly on Twitter. And because it was very little data, I started looking at the data myself. And I started just sharing on Facebook with my friends some of these analyses. It turned out that a lot of people were commenting on them, on sharing them. I, I found that really interesting, and I kept going. I was becoming, at that point, I had spent enough time that I felt confident about some of my conclusions. But then I was talking, I was looking around, especially in, in startups in Silicon Valley or even tech companies in Silicon Valley, and very few of them were sending people to work from home. And that sounded counterintuitive to me because at that point, at the end of February, you had Italy and South Korea that had massive outbreaks. And if you were looking at the day-to-day updates, you would see how many of these cases were leaking from these countries to other countries, especially from Italy. Italy was a hotbed of seeds everywhere in the world. And so you look at the history and you're telling yourself, well, the same thing is going to happen here. How are people not seeing this? And so my first initial push was actually to help companies realize this. And so that's why in my first article, one of the models that I share is how can you make a decision on how to close on when to close your company? And it was very much focused initially on uh, helping businesses uh, make these decisions, among others, because I wanted mine to send people to work from home. And I was seeing in my company, all the others, that it was hard to convey that message. Then the article was really just an accident. I, I was putting all this information online on Facebook, and one of my friends said, hey, can you put that analysis that you did for Bay Area and Washington State and make it for Paris? Because I have a, a bunch of friends in, in Paris here, and that, that would be beneficial. So I just put it together, basically the research that I had done in the previous two weeks in one place, and that's the Medium article. I expected that to be maybe 10, 15, 20,000 views, at most, 100,000, 200,000. That's what around my most viral article had. Like 50 million with all these articles is just is yeah. ridiculous. It's absurd. Yeah, I just want to give people some context on when this article came out to you. This is, I think the article came out on March 10th. That's really the week where I think the Western world started to take the coronavirus seriously. That was a day after Italy announced their nationwide lockdown a couple days after South by Southwest was canceled, a day before the NBA suspended its season. And everyone sort of went from, hey, the coronavirus is this thing and a far off place, we don't have to worry about it, to like, oh shit, this is, this is real and it's actually coming for us. And your article is called Coronavirus, Why You Must Act Now. And like you said, it got 40, 50 million views in just the very first week, which is absolutely nuts. That's like the most viral article you could possibly write. And it's a 25-minute uh, long. Article full of yeah, charts. it's long. Who does this? Who does this? this is a, that shouldn't exist. That shouldn't happen. How did that, uh, the reception, millions and millions of people reading this article and sharing the article, how did that translate into effects on your personal life? It was unfortunately fulfilling. 
I would have hoped that everything I, I had written was wrong and that everybody took measures very like early enough that none of it ended up being true. But the fact that I ended up being true because people to take too long to government, especially took too long to take measures, meant that a lot of people saw it as an eye-opening piece, and as a result, they were sharing it to everybody. So what happened is, like you, you mentioned that you shared your art, the article with other people, and that's what really started happening. The first feedback that I got was friends saying, "I received these article from random people." from random groups. I have a Russian friend said that he received these from uh, his group of childhood friends from Russia. My parents were receiving these from uh, random WhatsApp groups without them knowing that it was their son who had written it. So these kind of stories, there was a lot of that. And that was kind of funny. The first one that was fulfilling. The other one uh, was a lot of business leaders uh, sending me a message saying, it is because of your piece that I closed my company or that I sent people working from home. And so thank you. So that was super fulfilling. And then the third wave was governments. Governments reaching out saying, hey, we took measures thanks to that or asking for advice on what to do. And that's what I'm focusing on now. I think the biggest impact that I can have is around helping governments decide what policies to enact. And that's what I'm focusing on right now. I mean, you've gone from basically writing some Facebook posts for your friends and family to advising governments on how they can prepare for the crisis. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So I don't usually talk about the details of uh, these conversations because I want to assume usually that they're private. But just yesterday, I had a conversation with with the parliament members in the European Union. And I'm saying that because they they mentioned so publicly. So we had a a one-hour session with couple of dozen of them and it's fantastic i am very fulfilled that i can share some insights that are relevant to governments and so that's like if it can help them make the right decisions then that's enough for me it fulfills my goal of helping others one of the things that I've, i've seen around this entire pandemic has just been how difficult it is for people to find information and to sort of make sense of it all because you have epidemiologists and virologists and public health experts who are very good at their craft and they understand the science, but they're not perhaps the best communicators or they don't know how to spread their message virally on medium. And so people like my mom, for example, aren't following them. She's not reading what they have to say because she has no idea where to find it. And then I, I see your role as almost being an intermediary where you take what these people are saying, what they're writing, Absolutely. and you're good at basically viral growth. It's literally your job and disseminating a message in a way that people can understand and it solves their problem. Very much. I am an aggregator. I am an aggregator and a curator of information. To 85% of what I read over the last couple of months has been papers, scientific papers, especially because many of the aggregation layers that I see are not equipped to read the papers in a way that they are good communicators. So it's not just a storytelling issue, which it is, but it's also a uh, an accuracy issue. I'll give you an example. I'm speaking a lot with Spain right now. That's where I'm from. And the Imperial College wrote a paper suggesting that 7 million Spaniards were infected. That's around 20% maybe of the country. That would be a huge deal if that was true, because it means that you can have herd immunity for not too expensive a price. And so people saw this and, oh, 
there are 7 million Spaniards. Oh my God, this is a huge crisis. We should do herd immunity. We should open the, up the country. But you need to learn to look at the details. And it's a model. It's based on a few hypotheses. And the range is between 2 million and 19 million people. Right? So if you, then you look at comparisons outside, you realize that most proxies say that the number of true cases is 2 million. So that's just an illustrative example. But I think your underlying question is, is super interesting. It is basically, how can you look at all the data that is outside and consume it and translate it into something that is digestible? And several layers to it. Like the first one is being able to tell which data to rely on. And I think that is a core skill set that people working in startups need to have because they are going to have different people giving them different levels of advice different consumers asking for different things and there's gonna they're gonna have a lot of insight that is not going to be consistent and going in the same direction and the dilemma of an entrepreneur right like for example if they get a lot of feedback saying hey your idea is bad what should you do like should you listen to it or not Maybe it's true that your idea is bad, right? But from another perspective, you're always going to be told that your idea is bad. And so like feel, like taking that information in and filtering it is core. And so the, the way I do it personally in my job and for the coronavirus is, is just always going to the root of what is said and the arguments and then doing that due diligence on all of that. That's why I go to papers only. It's the root of the data. And you, I look at the methodology to make sure that it makes sense before I trust it and move forward. You spoke earlier about there being a sort of facade. Whenever anybody watches a movie or reads a story, there's a facade where we see the story and we enjoy it, but we're not necessarily aware of what went into making that story work. And I, I think a lot of people experience the facade of your article. They might say, oh, this is a viral article. And sometimes people write things and they blow up and they're effective. And sometimes people write things and they don't work. What would you say is at the core of what made your article so effective and so yeah. popular? And do you think sort of the things you've learned from startup growth and storytelling have played a role? Or do you think there's other factors that went into it? It is impossible to tell. I can make guesses on it. The guess that I am the most confident on is that a huge part of it is luck. Luck is not sufficient though, right? There are a lot of pieces that, in my experience in the past, that have helped for this that were also not sufficient but they were necessary. Right. So like, we're talking about storytelling, right? Without storytelling, I would have not been able to do this. Without having created viral apps 10 years ago and understanding what exponential growth meant, I wouldn't have had this intuitive sense of what was going to happen. Without having worked on mergers and acquisitions as a consultant, I wouldn't have been faced uh, to a problem of looking at data that's bullshit and figuring out what's true and what's wrong only based on data. So there's just a lot of these experiences that in tacitly, intuitively form a person's experience. And in my, my case, it just happens that it was a combination that ended up creating this article that was useful to the world. I think a lot of it is just happens. It happened to me and it could have happened to many other places, people in, in different situations. You certainly got the timing right. It came out on what seems to be the perfect day. And you also, I think, got the audience you nailed it. I mean, you wrote this for business leaders. You wrote this for, I mean, the subtitle of your article, I think now is uh, politicians, community leaders, and business leaders. What should you do and when? And those are the kind of people who, when they share what you've written, other people pay attention. And you've gotten all these endorsements. I think there's been 
you know, some rumblings online about, well, you know, why are so many people in the tech industry the leading voices on what to do in the coronavirus? Are they epidemiologists? Are they scientific experts? But your article has actually been endorsed by hundreds of epidemiologists and virologists and also some other very famous writers and intellectuals, including Andrew Yang, Tim Fair, Steven Pinker, Jonathan Haidt, Mark Benioff, my boss, Patrick Collison. A lot of people with huge audiences ended up sharing your article. You're right. So a lot of the, these experiences I was talking about did have a direct influence in how the, the article was written. You mentioned the, the main title, right? The main title is, I played with it a lot. In fact, you can look at the URL and you will see that the main title initially was different. It was something like, uh, act now or people will die. And then the reason why I had chosen that first is because it was dark, but then it was probably a bit too dark. So I translated into a very, it's a call to action. Right? The, the, the article title is a call to action. And the subtitle that you're talking about is very much touching on the core audiences that can receive this, but not only because the way it's structured is the overall mass message is for these leaders, but for that message to reach leaders, other people need to send them the message, right? And so by calling out these core audiences, leaders, the subtext of it is not just, hey, this is just for leaders. It is whoever you are, send this to your leaders. So these are a couple of examples. The, at the end of the article, there's this very special call to action, which is something like, this is probably the one time this decade where sharing something might actually save lives. And I debated a lot internally on whether to write that or not. In some situations, that could be called a dark pattern, right? It's telling people, hey, share this thing. And these are good. there is a good reason for you to share this thing. So I very much debated internally a lot, but then I thought about it and realized, well, this very much right. is true. Like this is one time where this might be the case. And so I know this is gonna work and I should be using it in this situation. So all the viral experience I had in the past, white patterns, dark patterns, gray patterns, and the decision I had to take in the past not to use these dark patterns, but the fact that I knew about them helped me create what at this point became a white patterns that I wouldn't have known otherwise if I hadn't worked in virals. Well, listen, Tomas, I know you've, you've got to run. I'm like you. I'm an analytical guy. It's really fun to hear about sort of the thought that goes into building an article like this and the fact that it's not 100% of an accident, although luck does play a huge role. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and taking the time to share what you know about storytelling. And listeners, I hope you go and you find some of Tomas's writings, uh, especially about the ring structure of storytelling and also Act 2 and Act 3 of his articles on Medium about the coronavirus. Tomas, can you let listeners know where they can go online to find out more about what you're up to and what they can do to sort of protect themselves and their families and their businesses and employees during the next few months. Yeah. First, I'm, I'm going to post a fourth article this week and is focused on specific measures that governments can take, also citizens, but it's especially focused on governments. And I think it's important for everybody to read, to really make sense of the debates that are going to start starting to rage in the coming weeks. One of them, for example, about privacy. We're going to be talking about privacy for the next few weeks um, because to contact tracing for it to work will require privacy. So people should be expecting that. I have a newsletter that people can sign up for at the bottom of each one of my articles. I'm also pretty active on Twitter, so you can um, use Twitter. But on things that people can do today, the key one is probably just masks. That is the one thing that we can all do. Build your own mask 
and use it always when you go out. That single thing, if it's done consistently, can reduce uh, the transmission rate by, say, 50%. We don't know, but it can be uh, that, it can be even more. And so if just with this action, we can have such an impact on the epidemic, then everybody should do it. All right. For listening to this, you heard the man, wear a mask next time you go out. Tomas Poya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Every time I release a new episode, I try to send an email with my thoughts, my takeaways, and my advice. You can find that at ndhackers.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next time.